Hey, what's up everybody? I'm Michael Woods, founder of Inclusive Sport Design and welcome to the Sport is for Everybody podcast where we talk all things inclusion in sport with amazing guests who are out there making it happen. We are recording on beautiful Gundungurra country and I'd like to acknowledge and thank the Gundungurra people and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I also pay my respects and welcome all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and all other Indigenous and First Nations peoples who are watching or listening in with us today. Now, if you're new to the podcast, welcome and thanks for being here. Please go ahead and hit subscribe so you'll be notified about our future episodes. You don't want to miss anything. Today is episode eight, and I'm with Brendan Alwood to learn how he has been influencing inclusion in the fitness industry in the US. So Brendan is the owner of Unified Health and Performance. He's also the president of Adaptex, which we will get into throughout the conversation. And he's the director of the Rick Hoyt Research Lab. Brendan is a strength and conditioning coach by trade who's passionate about creating inclusive and accessible opportunities in fitness for people with intellectual and physical impairment. And he's also working towards making the whole fitness industry more accessible and inclusive across the USA and even beyond. Now, today we're going to explore how Brendan got into adaptive fitness, and we're going to break down exactly how he goes about ensuring people with disability can be included in the gym. And as always, we will get Brendan's top inclusion tip at the end. So stick around for that. With that all said, let's get into it. Brendan Alwood, welcome to the Sporties for Everybody podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. I know it's early for you, so I hope you've had your coffee. Do you want to just let everybody know where in the world you are? Yeah, I'm in Massachusetts, stayed in the US on the East Coast, small town that if you were from Massachusetts, you might not even be able to identify, but it's it's worked out for us. We've got a, we've got a great community here. No, I love it. I live in a similar similar part of the world here in New South Wales, in Australia as well. Country town vibes is is good. So so totally on board with that. Let's kick it off by do you want to share with us how you got into adaptive and inclusive fitness? You know, what's that story for you? Yeah, my first exposure was through Special Olympics and Best Buddies in high school. So I was fortunate that our high school had really strong programs for both. When I was a sophomore. So second year of high school, our district started a Special Olympics program. I actually broke my wrist so I couldn't play basketball. And my mom more or less forced me to go volunteer at this new Special Olympics program that was starting. And honestly, I had no exposure to disability prior to that. So I was about 15 years old. I was paired with a kid, Zach, who was... So excited for me to be there, so excited to be participating. I was just honestly immediately hooked. So that was 15 years ago. Zach's now a client at my gym. We golf together. And so through that was my first introduction, got involved with Best Buddies. We had a really strong chapter at my high school and I started special education. I was on a path to hopefully become a special education teacher always said that I just wanted to be back at my high school teaching the kids that I was working with through our Special Olympic program. But about halfway through university, I I always had a, a passion for fitness and sport, and I kind of decided I wanted to do something a little different. Uh, I was a little discouraged by, not discouraged, but not as enamored with the rigidness of special education and ABA therapies and stuff like that. I wanted a little more flexibility to kind of build out the relationships and build out the interventions how I wanted to. And I just found fitness to be like a great medium for introducing people with and without disabilities. 
um, helping people explore what they're capable of and came up with the concept of what now is my gym when I was a sophomore in college and spent three years working towards putting it together. And then I opened it in 2016 and we're about seven years in and it's going yeah. quite well. No, it, it is going really well uh, by all accounts. So, and hence why you're, you're on the podcast, because we want to dig right into that. But before we get into kind of the business and the, the fitness programs that you're offering and things, I, I wanted to just pick up on that sort of experience as a young person, you know, at school and being exposed to that, that best buddies program and the special Olympics movement. How, how important do you think that sort of exposure is to kids these days, you know, and are they getting that so that they can have the same sorts of, you know, experience in terms of inclusivity and, and, and supporting people with special needs and things in, in school in particular, but outside of that as well, how important is that? Uh, it's essential. I think we were very fortunate that our school kind of embodied both those aspects of inclusion everywhere from like unified sport programs at the high school to the extracurriculars, to the best buddies program being really strong. When I was a senior, we won national chapter of the year for the States, for the U S. So. I, I was just, I guess, very lucky to be immersed within that culture right out of the bat, because I guess I never would have been introduced to this type of career if I hadn't had those experiences, and not every high school does. But I think it's essential. I mean, my my understanding of inclusion has involved, evolved over the last six or seven years. When I started my gym, Special Olympics Unified Sports was what I knew. And then over the years, as I kind of immersed myself within definitions of inclusion, literature on inclusion. It's, it's changed a little bit, but that still is, is foundational for introducing people to environments that are more welcoming and accepting. So. Yeah, that's really cool. It's not the sort of thing that's very common over here in Australian schools, those sort of integrated programs and unified type programs. And certainly the unified model of sport that Special Olympics have kind of driven quite, quite strongly in the U.S., is pretty uncommon in a lot of other places as well. So if anyone's kind of wondering what that's all about, I might drop some links in the, in the show notes, just for people to have a look at, to, to get a bit of an idea of what unified sports is actually all about and how that, how that looks, which I think would be useful for people. Thanks for that. So let's jump back to unified fitness. Tell us all about it. How did that get started? You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but how to get started and yeah, what, what does it look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so it's a conversation that I have sometimes with other fitness professionals in terms of them asking what's been essential to like the gym being successful. And it's sometimes a tricky answer because I don't know. So I think a big part of my gym success is that I had spent five or six years running these special Olympic programs that served 75, 80 athletes in our area. I spent a couple of years as just a volunteer strength conditioning coach at the high school, building up some, some athletic performance clientele as well. So I, so when I came up with the idea and when I signed our first lease and started our gym in 2016, like I already had 40 or 45 people that like came through the door without really any effort. Cause I had already kind of cultivated those relationships. So, so I started just trying to serve people with and without disabilities. To me, it's always been like whenever we get a new client, we run a pretty individualized model. So everyone who comes in gets some sort of guidance. No one uses the gym independently. So the fact that they have a disability or not really just becomes another characteristic to how we design a program for them. So I might have a division one 
hockey player and there are certain considerations for how we train them. And then I might have a wheelchair user with cerebral palsy and there are certain frameworks that we use for training them. But the fact that it's individualized allows them all to seamlessly coexist. It's not like a group class where we're trying to fit around peg in a square hole. It's not like we're trying to fit everyone into one model. It's that we're just creating an environment where everyone can come in get the guidance and the support they need. And whether they have a disability just becomes another thing to consider with how we instruct and how we put together the program. So it's been, I think, relatively seamless. We try to promote like a, a less intimidating model of inclusion. I think some people think for adaptive fitness or inclusive fitness that you have to have all of the specialized, expensive, adaptive pieces of equipment that you might see at rehabilitation hospitals and places like Spalding and Journey Forward. Whereas we just try to demonstrate that like when the systems are in place and when you have the right people, that people with disabilities can can seamlessly coexist within a, a traditional fitness setting. Yeah. I think I think we can sometimes get caught up in the idea that inclusion costs us a heap of money because we need infrastructure and capital works and expensive, crazy equipment in order for inclusion to happen. But the reality is that a lot of times that's bonus and you can achieve really significant outcomes without that stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. It's been interesting. Like we, we work with the, the type of clientele we get is typically like autism spectrum, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy. So, so some of them more so like intellectual disabilities. So, but more recently I've gotten a couple adult clients with spinal cord injury and stroke, and it's been interesting to have conversations with them about, and I'm very transparent, like I'm not a physical therapist, I'm a strength conditioning coach. Like this isn't a rehabilitation setting. This is a getting you as back to normal as possible before your, before your injury or before your accident. And I mean, obviously I'm biased and I, I don't mean to blow it out of proportion, but both of them have kind of communicated how, and they went to like the best rehabilitation hospitals in the U.S. and they kind of relay how they almost like being in the gym setting better because uh, mm -hmm. it makes them feel like not rehab it's getting back to a sense of normalcy so yeah, i think it's like, they would have done before the accident or before right, the injury exactly. like <laughs> yeah they they sometimes commiserate that like it, they don't move as well or things are more challenging i completely understand that like an acquired injury an acquired disability i think has a whole sort of social emotional component to it that that chronic disability might not but i think i think just giving them a setting where they can exist among their peers, trained to just kind of become the best version of themselves in whatever capacity they're currently in. And we just make it very goal oriented. So the client with post-stroke, he's about one year post-stroke, he wants to do a bike ride across the country. So we're just like, we're engineering that. So like, what, what skills do you need to be on a bike for, for a four week period? Like, what do you need to do to be able to balance well? Like, what do you need to do cardiovascularly? And then we just put together the program for that. So for me, it's always just been like, start with the goal and then work back from there. And so whether they have a disability or not, it's kind of the same process. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're going to dig into a little deeper how you kind of go about doing that work. But I'm interested to know like how, how did it go, particularly when you first started and even even now, how did it go kind of like, did you have to convince clients without disability to come and use the gym or was that, was there, a, was that a kind of 
a no brainer for people or is it a specific type of person that's coming or, or is, do you have just uptake like a normal gym as well as from people with disability? How, how does that look? Yeah. The marketing piece might be a little tricky because I'm sure there's people that say like, oh, he's the gym for people with disabilities. And I might never hear from those people. So I don't know if that's really a conversation that's had often. I mentioned that the last couple of years of university, I was, I was commuting two or three times a week back to my high school to train the basketball and the hockey teams because I wanted, I, I needed to build rapport with people without disabilities and have them. And these are like the best athletes in the school. So I almost thought like, oh, if people see them training with us, then it would paint a picture of like, it's not only for people with disabilities. So I, I think like just, I guess how we, how we promote the normalcy of it all, how we represent both sides of our, our clientele on our social media pages. And I, I might also just kind of be fortunate since I'm on the younger side. So I started the gym when I was 23. So it wasn't really hard for me to like relate to high school and college kids. I was already well immersed within the community. So I think that reduced some of the barriers and some of the friction for people without disabilities to join us. And now it's like, we have about 250 members and probably somewhere between a quarter and a fifth have disabilities. We might have about 55, 60 clients with disabilities and then a couple hundred without. So they've both grown kind of in their own ways. But like I said, maybe someone thinks that the gym's not for them because we only work with people with disabilities, but if they don't want to be in that environment, I'm not sure I really want them anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a really interesting business model. And just for clarity, it's, you operate as a for-profit I do offer company, as a right? for-profit. Yeah. yeah. That was, I, I think that was important to me as well. Like initially when I was putting together a rudimentary business model, like Nonprofit was kind of all I knew through Special Olympics and Best Buddies. And I was almost like, oh, I'll just fundraise my way like out of this initially. Like, I'm sure I can get people to support me. And it wasn't until I kind of shifted to for-profit, had to shift my thinking to like, how can I make this a profitable model? How can I make this a sustainable business that I was really able to move forward with it? And we, we kind of have a big shtick on like, so Adaptex, our educational company is a nonprofit for a few other reasons, but our gym is a for-profit, but we always talk about through our education stuff that like inclusion's not reserved for charities. That's a, a big perspective that we kind of adopt that inclusion can't really be achieved unless for-profit entities that weren't typically designed for people with disabilities kind of adopt a more inclusive mindset. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And I think there's, yeah, making these types of services, which is what they are, sustainable means they have to be profitable otherwise they don't last right or or the service quality has to suffer or the amount of impact you have can has to suffer you know they're not they're not scalable right so i think i think going down the for-profit avenue as a service provider in the inclusive model that you have i think is is unique in the fitness industry and it's a really great model you have so well done you mentioned adaptx we're going to get to that because it's a, it's a really important piece of work that you've been driving for the last couple of years. And, and I think that will be of real interest to our listeners, but I want to dig into a little further, the, the way you go about running unified performance and what that looks like. So in terms of those clients, and you sort of already mentioned that you were leveraging your previous sort of networks with special Olympics and, and the work that you were doing in the schools and things like that, but how, how have you gone about engaging 
those clients in terms of marketing? You mentioned a couple of things, but what, what else have you been doing in that regard to, to continue to get those new clients in? Yeah, everything's been organic in terms of we don't do any paid marketing. And I think like sometimes people say that as like a badge of honor. I don't necessarily think paid marketing is bad in any way. It's just something I'm not particularly good at. It's not really something that I'm super knowledgeable on. So like, yeah, I could throw up a Facebook ad, but I just see Facebook slowly taking my budget away. And I'm like, I don't know if this is yeah. really getting any benefits. So it's more so just like, it's not what I'm good at. So uh, I'm sure I could bring in someone that might help me scale the gym a little better. But like with these, we, some people call them like micro gyms. So we just have 3000 square feet, predominantly free weights and just open space. You're not really going for quantity. You're more so yeah. going for quality. Yeah. So we can kind of, we can work with like our perfect client or we call them like seed clients. And then we, we try to replicate that. And sometimes the best way to do that is just through their network. So mentioning to them that we would love to have more people uh, just like them in our gym. And maybe they have friends or they know someone who could benefit from a service like this. But from the, like from the disability space, um, just still involved with a lot of organizations. So I run for Team Hoyt, uh, which is like a wheelchair duo team. So I push uh, a kid with Down syndrome and autism and marathons. And just like, I've just always been immersed within these communities. It's kind of grown organically. Just people see what we're doing. And like I said, it doesn't, we're not trying to cater to everyone, but we do a pretty good job catering to our local demographic, I think so. Yeah, and I think you've there's there's some it, it might intuitive feel intuitively feel restrictive to sort of have you know a maximum kind of amount of people yeah. that you can that you can bring into the gym, but I think there's also some freedom in that, right? Like you said, you can pick your perfect clients, and you can yeah. you can be okay with people not choosing your gym, right? I mean, we yeah. offer we offer a highly individualized yeah. and like high touch service. So we're never going to be able to do that for a thousand people unless yeah. we have a very large staff. So like, I wouldn't say we're, we're maxed out. We're certainly not maxed out from a space standpoint, but almost from like a programming standpoint, because I'm probably yeah. spending 10 or 15 hours a week, just putting together programs for all of our clients who come in. And then a lot of our clients with autism or down syndrome cp they might almost need like not they don't need one-to-one -one, but they need enough hands to support them through their workouts and so we're lucky that we have a good blend of coaches interns and some of my high school and college athletes just like to hang around and help out with those sessions when they're needed so i'm, I'm very lucky for the for the staff that we have working here as well they're really what makes the makes the model run smoothly so yeah. And in that, in that process, perhaps in the early days of trying to kind of understand what people's needs were and figuring out what that service model looked like and, and those yeah. sorts of things, was there anything that kind of, I guess, was surprising that you kind of hadn't thought of before was unexpected that you kind of, you know, changed your thinking about, about things at all? Yeah. It's evolved a little bit over time. Like we started with middle school classes, adaptive classes, high school classes. And I just found it to be like almost in like that middle school class, like I would have a 12 year old who might have some attentional challenges trying to train with a 14 year old who's trying to get ready for high school sports. And like when you confine people to like a specific label, you get such a wide range, not 
even in the disability space, just in like the high school sports space or the college sports space, like everyone has their own goals and their own experiences. So it was actually kind of with COVID where we, we had capacity limitations at the gym. We could only train four or five people at a time where we kind of implemented like scheduling systems and people having to sign up for specific sessions. And, and now we're trying to get to the point where whether you have autism or CP, like you sign up for these sessions that are labeled strength and conditioning, and you might have a couple high schoolers with autism. You might have some adults training. You might have a few college athletes training. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, we're trying to move away from specific population classes and more so just giving people the opportunity to train whenever is most convenient for them. How that's manifested, like, some of our young adults with disabilities still train at the same days and times every week. And they like seeing their friends from school, like they've aged out of the school system and, and they still want to see those people that they were in their transitions programs with. But I think the important part is that they have the option to train at other times if they desire, but it's just like that population and those people mm -hmm. are their friends and that's where they feel the most sense of belonging. So, yeah, no, I think that creating that sense of belonging in ways that make sense for the clients is super important. And that's what makes people keep coming back. I reckon you mentioned before, like your own personal networks, particularly at the outset was sort of critical in you know, bringing your clients in and helping you kind of figure out how to deliver the services and things. But are there any kind of formal partnerships that you have as a business with other say community groups or disability services or, or, or others that, or individuals even maybe that, that sort of play a role? Yeah, not particularly, not from like a partnering with like a special Olympics type of standpoint. <clears throat> um, she's, I'll do things for them. Like I'll do training camps for their, their team, USA team and stuff before they go mm -hmm. to worlds or before they go to USA games, but I don't have any formal partnership. There's a couple. There's a couple schools that support people with disabilities who come like once a week for a class, kind of just as part of their curriculum, but we only have three programs that do that. So they just come for a weekly class. Everyone else is kind of like a private sector gym. So everyone else is paying for their membership through their agency with choice budget, or they're having, they're still getting support from their parents and their parents are paying for their memberships, et cetera. So no formal partnerships, just like a lot of really strong relationships and I've always kind of approached it from the lens of like, I just offer to help when I can and I don't necessarily expect anything in return. And that's maybe just, I don't know if that's the best way to grow the business, but it's been, it's been effective for me, I guess, to a degree. No, I think it's a great way. I think when you're in that giving mindset, it has a, has a way of coming back around, right? So, so that's really cool. I'm interested to know a little bit more about in terms of the, the actual training sessions with, with your clients with disability, what, what are the sorts of things that you do with your clients in terms of adaptations? What, I know you mentioned that you, you don't have a, you know, a huge amount of sort of adaptive equipment and although you, you tend to sort of yeah. keep that side of things pretty simple, but I'm sure there are things that you do with particular clients that are, are adaptive and are innovative in, in terms of getting, getting people through activities and things. So have you got any examples that might be useful to, and I guess, you know, put your teacher hat on and, and yeah. imagine yeah. There's, there's other fitness professionals and coaches in the room mm -hmm. uh, who are interested to know how you go about it. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe try to condense our like programming framework. Yeah. Concisely. And it's something I've actually been recently working on updating our, our programming module for the course that we teach. So it's, it's something that's relatively fresh in my head. But like I said, we'll start with the client's goals. So that first session with a new client tends to be pretty exploratory, figuring out what pieces of equipment they're drawn to. We start by doing what's called like building, we call it building a trainable menu. So if someone uses loft strand crutches to navigate the gym, then that that limits them to a specific selection of exercises. If someone uses a wheelchair, so maybe it, it would be easier to go through like a wheelchair user. So we ask like, can they transfer to the ground? Can they easily transfer from the ground to their chair? If not, then all our ground-based exercises are out of the equation. If they can transfer to the ground, but it takes a good amount of effort, then we're going to want to structure the workout to maybe starting with all their ground-based exercises, then moving to all their chair exercises, and then moving to some sort of cardio piece. Just so like we, we always want to get as much work done as possible within the hour. So we're trying to limit those transitions. We're trying to like limit the wasted time going back and forth between pieces of equipment. So when we structure like a circuit or when we structure a pairing of exercises, we try to make it as logistically convenient as possible. So if they're lying down on a bench, they're going to do one or two exercises where they're lying down on a bench instead of getting to the bench, getting strapped in. We typically strap and wrap a strap around their quads so they kind of have more stability if, if they're not able to use their legs. So instead of unstrapping them, transferring from their chair, moving over to a cable machine back and forth, we're just going to stay in one space for all that. So we're always kind of trying to identify what exercises they have access to. But that's the same thing for like, when we train like a baseball player, there are certain exercises that we bias. Or when we train an adult who had a knee replacement, there are certain exercises that we bias. Like, that's how I said, like, if you start with the goal and you work backwards and identify what they're able to do and what they need to be able to do, it's pretty easy to put together programs for like vastly different uh, people and have them training at the same time. So I guess our framework is just kind of that, like identify what exercises they have access to. Like, yeah, maybe some of them could benefit from a very highly specialized hand cycle or a, a treadmill for a wheelchair user, but I'm a for-profit. I have to make sure the, that my equipment budget doesn't exceed my, my revenue. Yeah. So we start with a pretty lean, I, I find myself learning more so from like adjacent fields, like business and things almost more so than, than fitness at this point. And we adopt kind of like a lean startup principle where you try something, you revise it, you try it again, mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of identify what works and what doesn't. And it's the same, the same, same can go for fitness. So, yeah, I love that. There's, there's a couple of really great, I guess, tips in there for, for, for any instructors, fitness professionals, coaches around who, who maybe are just getting into adaptive programs or, or working with athletes with disabilities, there's, there's the task and the activity that you might be putting these people through, but you've got to think about the transitions. You've yep. got to think about how you move from activity to activity and whether or not those, that order of activity or those types of activity are actually appropriate for people, whether they can, they might be able to functionally perform them, but they might, it might not be the best to do two activities back to back. You might need yeah. to think about that scheduling. And I think that's, that's a learning curve. A lot of people I guess, have, have to face before they understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's a little takeaway there, but yeah. the, the other thing in there is the, the individualized approach, right? 
that's key to all of this. And, and you, you, you take the same approach for every person that turns up to the gym and everyone's program might look different, but, but your approach to it is, is universal, which is, which is super important. I always say like to be a effective, adaptive fitness professional, whatever that means, you have to be an effective fitness professional first. Like a lot of the creation, like creative solutions that we like kind of come up for some of our clients with mobility impairments are really just exercises that you would do with non-disabled clients, like just in kind of like a creative way. Uh, and then when we're working with intellectual disabilities, Down syndrome, et cetera, like we, we use a lot of constraints, which is just like how we set up the environment to improve how a client executes the exercise. Cause when you have to cognitively attend to like multiple steps of a direction or a lot of moving body parts, it, it tends to get hard for people to execute things well and with enough effort. So we kind of make sure that the exercises we're choosing are suitable for them, both intellectually and physically. And that just is a little bit of a learning curve, trying different things, seeing what works. But Yeah. A question that I've got, and it, it may not be an issue, because you're kind of on a membership type system for clients and things, but I know certainly in sport, it can be a challenge is, is actually retaining participants, you know, retaining your clients in your programs. How, how do you, how do you keep people involved over the long term? And are there any challenges or barriers in there that prevent engagement over the long term? Yeah, absolutely. Like if we get a client in high school, maybe they're training for a high school sport. And then when they finish high school, if they don't go on to play a college sport, they're likely not going to keep training at my gym. Just like I have a higher price point. Some people still do, but I recognize that a lot of people, once they become that college age, they might be looking for just a more commercial gym setting where they can go at whatever time they want. They don't have to schedule sessions. They don't have to pay $100 a month. They can pay $20 a month. So that's always been tough for me because like I, I put a lot of time and energy into like every client who comes in and I build really good relationships with each. So when they kind of move on to other settings, it's, it's tough for me, but not, not in any way that I would hold any animosity. It's just that like, it's tough to sometimes see people move on, but able to retain a lot of our clients with disabilities, just, I guess, through like the, the quality of the service that we provide, the lifetime value of those clients is, is pretty high because frankly, there's not many other options to compete with. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where like opening your doors for people with disabilities is a great business model for any gym because it's likely that a lot of the competitors in their area aren't doing that. So it opens you up to this whole other demographic that other people aren't serving. But so sometimes the, the longest lifetime value is when we get clients that are starting with us in middle school, they're working all their way through high school sports, college sports, same thing with our adults. I think sometimes like there's ebbs and flows with high school sports because they might not train as much when they're in season and then they might train more when they're out of season. So our adaptive clients, our adult clients are like the stability that our business needs to like not really have as much of a drop and not as many highs and lows. But it's, it's just maybe we work with so many people now that's just kind of a revolving door our fall sport people finish their season and they start and then our winter sport people leave. And, and initially the first few years, there was, there was definitely quieter times, but now it tends to be pretty consistent across the year. Yeah. That's so, really great. Know, like, your question, but <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's always something that's interested me in, in the sort of fitness context where, 
you know, people are signing up for a service or to access the gym and kind of the reasons they leave are, are not necessarily because of the environment they're in. It's, right. it's external factors, right? In terms of your clients with disability, are they coming self-funded, paying out of pocket, or are they coming on disability support pensions or, or other kinds of funding from service providers and things? Yeah, I would say the majority are self-funded. And I don't know if it's different in the States versus where you are. We have a few clients where I provide them invoices to get reimbursed through their health insurance. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of clients that have their gym membership built into their like 22 plus. I think it's called agency with choice here, where instead of going to like a day program, you basically get to build your schedule and, and dictate where you want your, your funds to go. So some people have the gym built into that. And then like, I think the argument that some people would make for an inclusive gym being a for-profit is like they'll pro they might cite uh, stats where people with disabilities are lower socioeconomic status. And maybe I'm just fortunate to be in a more affluent area uh, where a lot of our, our young adults with disabilities are still supported by their families. But the fact that we train a lot of other people allows us to provide financial assistance when needed. I mean, the, the client with a spinal cord injury started with me, like he's, he's done with PT because he's out of insurance money for that. So then he was looking yeah. for a, a more cost-effective option and I'm running, like he's getting the same, well, he's getting more support than our high school college athletes, but he's paying the same amount. But for me, that's just like, that's just the cost of doing business and running something like this is supporting the clients when they need it and just come coming up with flexible spending but it's not even i've found historically like it's not really my clients with disabilities that often need financial support i tend to be providing it more so for some of just like my high schoolers and middle schoolers yeah. and adults so i don't know if that's that might be more of a cop-out for why training people with disabilities isn't suitable for a for-profit model yeah i think there's a bit of a a myth around this idea that people with disability are, are all broke and have no money and are, are living, you know, on, on really small means. Some of us, of course, are, and, yep. and, and that's definitely the case, but it's not the case for everybody. And, uh, and there's a market to be serviced and you, you, you found that, which is, which is really great. One, one sort of other quick question before we jump into some of your other work is just around your facilities. Do you have any particular accessibility infrastructure in place there, you know, or did you have to overcome any challenges there or is that, is that all pretty good? Yeah, I bought a building a year ago. So we were in a smaller space for six years and then this location that we're in now became available two Mays ago. So a couple springs ago, and I went through the whole process of buying a commercial space, spent the couple months renovating it to be suitable. And installed like automatic handicap doors in the front entrance. There were a couple of handicap spots out front, but the the striped lines in between them weren't wide enough for a van. So I had to get the drive the driveway repaved. And it's just like those small things that you might not really think about initially if you haven't really been introduced to like this area of work. But it's it's been essential for us. We've had to widen doorways. Just the, the building that I bought wasn't really up for code and up to code in many ways. So I had to make a handful of, of renovations in that regard just to make sure that everything was accessible. The one thing I don't love about the space we're in now is like 
there are several units in my gyms in the back left. So a lot of our wheelchair users go in through the front uh, where the handicap accessible doors are, and they just have to navigate through our lobby to get to the gym, which is fine. The like a little bit further of a walk, maybe a 50 feet extra walk. But then we also have a back entrance, but the stairs were too steep and the driveway wasn't long enough to put any sort of ramp. So we like the, our back entrance isn't accessible. We looked into, we have a couple garage door bays in the gym. We looked into making those accessible where our clients could just pull up and open the garage doors. But like I had conversations with them and I was like, is that what you want? And they're like, no, I don't really want to make a huge scene every time I come. Yeah, yeah. The- I'd rather just come through the front door. Yeah, exactly. everyone else. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like there's, there's like a company that we were looking into like working with to make those, those doors accessible. And they're like, this is awesome. It's going to provide like so much freedom for your users. And then I like talk to them and they're like, no, we don't really want that. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so I guess it's just kind of like, it's tough because you can't just say like, oh, we just have conversations with your clients and see what they need. Because if you're not also considering all the clients who like prospective clients who haven't joined your gym yet, you have yeah. to be considering them as well. So there were definitely some accessibility hurdles that we had to check like face and I'm sure there'll be more. We have Braille on our, our lobby sign and then some people are like, oh, only like 5% of people with visual impairments read Braille. So it's just like those those things you like try to be as accessible as possible, but there's always going to be situations where people need a little more support. And then you just, you, you're active and you make, you make the, the necessary changes that you need to yeah. support that person in the future. So, yeah, I think there's a lesson in there for gym owners who may be thinking about getting into this or, or other providers to sort of say, yeah, accessibility is really, really important. It's essential, but. Being a hundred percent accessible for a hundred percent of people before you start isn't necessary, yeah. right? Because you'll be forever installing things and spending money and 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 not delivering services. And and there's ways and means around some accessibility challenges that you can you can deal with until you can make those infrastructure changes. So so and that might be use an excuse. <laughs> I I might I think that sometimes that prevents people from like starting is yeah. the idea that like the fear of the unknown and they're afraid that if they claim to be inclusive and accessible, that it's going to open them up for criticism when you're inevitably not. And so it just like, sometimes it, I think it prevents people from even wanting to try to cater to this clientele because they're mm-hmm. afraid that they'll be subject to criticism. And then I sometimes see on LinkedIn with like disabled voices and they're like, if you're not a hundred percent accessible, you don't care about people with disabilities. That's like, sometimes that stuff's tough. Yeah, as I feel like I'm on the ground, like doing as much work as possible, and then I have people that are like not directly criticizing me, but saying like, if you're not doing X, Y, Z, you don't care about people with disabilities. So if I was a 21 year old trying to get into the fitness space, inclusive fitness space, and I read stuff like that, I'd be like, oh, I don't, I yeah. don't even want to open up that can of worms. So we yeah, try, yeah. To, like I said, like as much normalcy as possible, and just try to like reduce the barrier to entry, not only for the individuals with disabilities, but also the fitness professionals. Yeah, totally. That's good advice. All right, let's shift to AdaptX. I'm super excited about the work you're doing there and it's it's a really great resource and platform. So share with the listeners, what is AdaptX? How did it start? Why did you create it? What is it? Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) it probably started four, four and a half years ago. And initially I was just putting together 
presentations for our staff and our interns on various disabilities and how I wanted to train them to like specific anatomical considerations for Down syndrome, like specific things for cerebral palsy. And it was kind of like my best way of learning was teaching. So I was, I was reading papers, I was reading books, I was trying to improve my own knowledge. And the best way for me to retain that was to put it into presentations and teach it to other people. So it, I kind of started piecing together these various modules, the initial iteration of what's now become like the AdaptX course wasn't super cohesive because it was kind of just various presentations put together. And now we've revised the course a couple of times to like make, so I guess we teach it to health and fitness professionals, physical therapists, occupational therapists, gym owners, personal trainers. And it's just really on like our, we call it fundamentals and theories of inclusive and adaptive fitness. So it moves from models of disability. So medical model versus a social model. And then it goes into universal design. So I had a special education background. So we talk about how to apply universal design to a fitness space. We talk about like assessments and asymmetries. Oftentimes fitness professionals get a little caught up on maybe someone with a physical disability presents with asymmetries, but so does everyone. So we try to uh, we try to lessen the fear around stuff like that. And then we go into programming principles, like at accessibility strategies and standards for fitness centers. And then we go into specific modules on disabilities and, and how we train clients with various disabilities. And obviously not every diagnosis can be accounted for. And yeah. the way that we do inclusive and adaptive fitness isn't the only way to do it. So we make all those disclaimers and like sometimes we'll teach spin instructors or yoga instructors and we have a very like strength training bias. So, but we try to make sure the course is applicable to them and they can kind of pick up pieces that might not be applicable to their specific discipline that they use for fitness, but that is still uh, suitable for helping them create a more inclusive environment. So the, it just started as presentations turned into a course. I incorporated it as a nonprofit towards the end of last year. So now AdaptX is a separate entity from my gym because one, I don't have much financial incentive. Uh, so we sell the course. It's a paid product. That's a revenue generating asset. But the thing that I wanted to do with Adaptec was like grow a team that is really passionate about making the fitness industry more accessible so we can apply for grants and I can sell the course and, and fund great employees to kind of help me with the marketing efforts and the instructional design and, and the actual instruction of it. And then we do some research as well. So we have a couple of university partners. We have a research space here at the, the facility that the Hoyt Foundation, so Rick and Dick Hoyt, if you're familiar with those two, I mentioned the wheelchair racing team that I run with. Rick and Dick Hoyt yeah. kind of pioneered I like inclusion within endurance sports and very fortunate to have a really strong relationship with both of them prior to them passing away. And so they were a, a large influence on my career. So now we have a research space named after Rick, the son with cerebral palsy and and we just like with the research space, our projects kind of revolve around how to make fitness more accessible and then also specific training strategies for people with cerebral palsy and Down syndrome. So yeah, that's kind of AdaptX. I guess you could differentiate the two between Unified being like our brick and mortar, our anecdotal evidence in terms of how to like operate inclusive fitness and then AdaptX being the intersection of like scientific literature as well as our anecdotal experience and then helping other people create more inclusive and accessible environments. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 amazing stuff, and the fact that you've built in the yeah the the research and evidence generation side of it to to further inform your practice is is really exciting and really cool as well. So so well done on getting all that set up. Who's who's using Adaptex at the moment? What types of people are taking the course? Uh, yeah, we've had a few hundred people go through it. We're pretty close to finishing. I won't say it's going to be the last revision because I'll probably always tinker with it, but like it's almost to the point. I where, never end. Yeah, <laughs> it's never going to end. And But I think that's part of what makes it one of the better educational resources on the market is like a mm-hmm. lot of certification companies, they try to get you to buy a course and then they try to keep you as a recurring customer by making you complete X number of CEUs every couple of years and reinstate your license where like, I just want our course to be like as comprehensive as possible. And we'll try to have live presentations every month where I bring in various guest speakers to like talk on a specific topic and just kind of like, it's a very growth mindset oriented course where like, this isn't the definitive answer. This is just an introduction to some of these concepts. So I think the the course has been great and it'll probably always be tinkered with it. But we work with YMCAs have been a great target customer for us. Are there YMCAs in Australia as well? Yeah, yeah. they operate slightly differently to the US, but yeah, we've got YMCAs yeah. across the country. So, so they have an inclusive mission as well. Uh, mm. They have an accessible price point. There's been some differences, obviously, in terms of how my gym operates and how they operate, but there's like all the chapters in New Hampshire took the course and now they've formed like this inclusive health coalition where we meet with other disability service organizations in New Hampshire and we talk about like what needs to be done to make the whys more accessible. So it's been fun to kind of be a part of those initiatives. We work with universities as well. We've had a half dozen universities that have had all of their like rec center staff take the course. So the personal trainers, the student trainers take the course so they can better support people on campus with disabilities. So that's been another great revenue. And then just private sector, personal trainers, strength conditioning coaches. But I think what I was initially saying was it's almost to the point where I think we're going to try to actually put some like marketing efforts behind it. So outside of just the social media content we create and the podcasts and and those efforts, we might also try to try to start marketing it more to more people. But like, yeah, I was always hesitant to to do so because I wanted to keep like working on the curriculum. But like I said, I think at some point you've got to ship it and then make the, make the adjustments. Yeah. You go. It, yeah. You got to ship it. And especially when it's something that makes such a big difference to the end user at the end of the day, right? You can't hold that back forever or else you'll never make the change that you're, that exactly. you're looking for. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that all sounds really great. We'll we'll share links to to Adaptex and and things so that people can check it out, and people might find that it's something that they want to sign up for and 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 build their capabilities around, which which I think could be a great decision. Awesome! Thanks so much for sharing all of that. This is the time of our conversation where we jump into our quick fire questions. Are you up for that? I'm up for it. Let's do it. All right. The first, the first one is who's your favorite athlete at the moment? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. Cause like, I, I tend not to idolize. I mean, my favorite athletes were like Rick and Decoit. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I guess I follow running most closely now as, as a marathoner. So some, some people in the marathon space, I look up to the most, but no, no like specific Wait, I guess. I'm off, I'm off to slow start on these quick hitting questions. <laughs> That's right. You don't have to have a favorite. That's okay. I love it. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot. Maybe this one's easier, but who's your favorite sports team? 
I guess we follow Boston sports most closely. So the Celtics and, and Bruins for basketball. And nice. Well, if anyone in Australia has never heard of them, we'll drop some links so you can learn about American sports. Um, all after our last conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's a whole different thing. And it's, it's actually Australian, Australian women's team just became world champion. So yeah. shout out to the Diamonds. Well done. So you mentioned you're a marathoner. What's your greatest sporting achievement? Yeah, we, for the last few years, we had been, Jacob and I had been working on trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. So you have to run, hopefully some people are familiar with the Boston Marathon as it being one of the, like the landmark marathons, but you have to run another marathon in under three hours to qualify. So there's no special consideration for pushing a wheelchair. So we ran a, a 255 marathon a couple months ago. So nice. that qualified us for next year's Boston. So. I will be able to run Boston in April, which will be a great experience. So that would be my greatest athletic. That's achievement. awesome. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Well, good luck. Good luck for that one. I've great. just, yeah. I ran, I ran a, a very non-marathon, almost 12 Ks, didn't quite run the full distance because mm -hmm. on Sunday at the time of this recording, I'll, I'll be doing the city to surf, which is oh. a, it's a fun run. It's not a marathon. It's 14 Ks, but it's still it's still a bit of a run for someone like me that doesn't actually run. So uh, wish, wish me, I might need to get some tips if tips from you. I don't know if I can help you in two days, but maybe the next one. <laughs> sure, the next one for sure. There might not be a next one. <laughs> All right. What's getting a bit more personal here. What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Depends on the day. So some couple of days a week, I start at the gym at five o'clock. Other days I start a little later now with a 14 month old. <laughs> I wouldn't say my priorities have entirely shifted because that makes it sound like I don't care as much about my work anymore, but it's been, it's been great for kind of finding that work-life balance. So on days <laughs> that I'm not at the gym super early, my favorite thing to do is just uh, wake up Nolan when he gets up. But I always start by just having <laughs> breakfast, I guess. <laughs> I eat a bagel most mornings. So that's not a super exciting first thing of the day, but I don't have any influencer morning routine that gets me in a mindset. I just try to survive through the day. Oh, good. That makes you feel better. So many of our guests have these amazing morning routines. Putting me no. <laughs> putting us to shame. No, that's cool. <laughs> um, waking your little newborn infant children up is one of the best things in the world, I reckon. Exactly. Yeah. It wears off the older they get. And <laughs> I promise. <laughs> so make the most of it now. Uh, most important question before we wrap things up, what's your, what's your best inclusion tip for our listeners? And maybe, maybe it's, it's. It's gym specific. Maybe it's not. Yeah. I don't know if it's a tip as much as just an encouragement to maybe audit your environments, put yourself in the shoes, I guess, of these various, and you can just use kind of easy to conceptualize disabilities. So if someone can't see, how are they going to be able to access your environment? How are they going to be able to access your programs? If they can't hear, how are they going to be able to participate? And you'll find that like, Accounting for those physical impairments benefits the entirety of the population. That's going to benefit all your clientele. And like I said, like you can't account for, and you reiterated it, you can't account for every need of every prospective client right out the gate, but you have to be willing to listen to their lived experiences and, and accommodate the ways that, that they need accommodation and not imply or not assume that you know how they want to be supported, but to have those conversations and, and respond accordingly. So I guess the best tip is just to get started, try to look at your environment, identify small 
things that you can do to improve the accessibility of it. And yeah, don't get overwhelmed by the concept of being accessible. Just create a welcoming environment and get started. Yeah, I agree. Get started. Don't don't wait for the perfect set of circumstances or, or you know, because yeah. you know, the longer you wait, the 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 fact is you're not serving anybody by waiting. Yeah, I mean, like if you don't have any clients with disabilities at your gym, I'm sure one of your clients knows someone who does have a disability, like offer to train them, figure out how you can train them in your environments and then figure out what adjustments you need to make and then hopefully just keep growing it from there. But yeah, absolutely. That, love it. Thank you very much for that. And thanks for everything that you shared with us today, Brendan. It's been, it's been really great to dig into how you're doing, what you're doing in the, in the fitness space. So thank you very much for joining us. How can our listeners get in touch with you or follow your work? Yeah. Adaptex is probably the most relevant thing to follow. So adaptex.org. So adapt and then the letter X.org for our website. We put a lot of our stuff on our website. We're about four episodes into a podcast that we just started. So on all the major platforms, you've got the AdaptX podcast. So we've recorded about 10 episodes, but we're just trying to release one a week. So every Monday morning, we'll have a new one out. And then social medias, adaptX.coach is our, our handle for that. We try to put out as much content there, trying to work on our newsletter. And so it's been a good, it's been a good summer. I had a marketing staff member working with me and we built a lot of, a lot of great channels to share the information. So yeah, any of those websites, socials, podcasts, hopefully they find it beneficial. I'm sure they will. And we'll drop all of the relevant links into the show notes and in terms of the podcast, looking forward to our episode or the episode yeah. that, I, that I was on coming out really soon. I hope that's useful to people as well, but it's, it's shaping up to, to be a really great resource, the podcast, as well as everything else you're doing with Adaptex. So okay. um, we'll, we'll share all of that. And uh, of course, for all of our listeners head over to inclusivesportdesign.com for more resources to help you take action on inclusion. And you can also, as usual, join the ISD community, which is our Facebook group, totally free, plus the mailing list, totally free, where you can get weekly inclusion tips from Inclusive Sport Design straight, straight into your inbox. Also, make sure you hit subscribe. Please hit subscribe. Please give us a rating or like us on whatever platform that you're listening or watching on. That just helps us reach more people so more people can hear the messages that our amazing guests have to share so that we can make sport and fitness and recreation and physical activity more inclusive and accessible for everybody so please go ahead and do that and i appreciate you if you do um brendan alwood that's it thank you so much for joining us on the sporties for everybody let me say that again brendan alwood thanks for making inclusion happen and joining us on the sport is for everybody podcast i appreciate you mate yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.